Jeff Dietrich. If I haven't met you yet, I think I've met most people around these parts, um, but uh, I help out as the discipleship pastor around here and teach some classes on Wednesday night, and, and uh, so I guess I can plug that, you know, come out Wednesday nights, and uh, we're going through the Gospels right now, and we got some other classes that are going on as well, everything for the whole family, so, so there you go, there's the plug, but uh, yeah, just awesome to be here this morning, share God's Word. Um, and uh, I, I do feel a little bad for you all, though, because, I don't know, does that, if anybody knows me a little bit, you know that I'm a really big Notre Dame fan. And yeah, they're pretty bad this year, and they lost last night, so get ready for some hellfire and brimstone, I'm telling you. I'm preaching angry today. <laughs> no, I, I pastored a church for 10 years, and, you know, preached just about every week, and, and it, when it was football season on Sunday morning after Notre Dame had lost, which happens too often sometimes, but you know, everybody comes up to me like, oh, how bad's it going to be this morning, Pastor? Yeah. <laughs> but no, I think I can muddle through. This, I'm not mad this year. I'm just disgusted by him this year. I, I had a friend one time, he said, you know, sometimes watching you know, Notre Dame is like watching your dog die every week. <laughs> That's what it felt like yesterday. It was, it was bad. So anyway, all right, beyond that, God's greater than my woes about football, right? We'll just, you know, go on with that theme. <laughs> Okay, I need an amen. Thank you. There we go. All right. Now, what I really want to share with you guys today, and I'll try to keep it smiley up here, is, um, is some truth about who we are as the people of God. That's where I feel God wants to, to bring us this morning. So I want to, uh, as the message is titled up here, Defining God's People. We're going to start in Exodus 19, if you, want to, if you have your Bibles or pull it up on your phones or device or whatever and follow along. We'll be there in just a moment. Uh, and I think this is important because we, um, you know, in our lives in general, not just even as a Christian or being in church or whatever, but just in life in general, layers tend to get added to things, don't they? <laughs> you know, everything always gets more complicated over time. The things which at once seem so simple uh, become so involved and so complicated. And uh, serving God, being part of God's family, being a Christian, coming to church, however you want to term it or think about it, you know, the same thing can happen. We can get involved in a lot of things and we serve in a lot of areas and all these things are really good. And I'm not saying we shouldn't do these things and we shouldn't, um, you know, just God himself is beyond our understanding. And so just diving into thinking about him and theological thought and it's just overwhelming in and of itself, right? So yes, God's a complicated thing. There's, I'm not up here to tell you, you know, it's it's all simple, and with half a brain cell, you can understand it. It doesn't work that way. And God wants us to use our entire brains, and we still won't get it all. But at the same time, it's important. It's important, I think, sometimes we just kind of step back a little bit from all the things we're involved in and all the complicating layers that get put on things, and we just pull back some layers and say, at its core, what does it mean to be a child of God? You know, I, I call myself a Christian. Like, what does that mean at its core? What is its main job description, right? Perhaps at your work, you have a job description, right? And there's, there's probably times where you're asked to do things different than that or whatever and go into different areas. But it's important every once in a while to be like, oh, no, this is what I'm hired to do. This is, what, this is who I'm supposed to be. And I, and I want to do that with this morning's message. Just for a moment, let's just do a check in all of ourselves and make sure we understand who we are as the people of God, you know, how we're supposed to view ourselves, how God views us, and what do we do about that? Um, because there's a lot of different people represented in this room, and with a lot of different people, 
come a lot of different giftings and talents and, and things you're good at. And uh, I had a friend who used to say this statement all the time, and I always latched onto this. He loved it. He, he, you know, whenever he'd talk about being appreciative for people's various giftings within the church, you know, he, he'd said, you know, he said, I, I see what you do, and I'd, I'd rather give a kidney than do that. <laughs> you know, and that's the way we feel, right? We see what other people are serving, and it's their joy. It's their pleasure to serve in that way. And we're like, oh, you couldn't pay me to do that. And that's just the power of diversity in the family of God. It's such a beautiful thing, right? But no matter what you are, you know, no matter how you serve, whatever your gifting is, whatever your talent is, at its core, we do all still have the same job description, right? We, do, we are still a child of God, and God views us in a certain way at its core. And so that's what I want to get at today. Underneath all those layers, who are we, and, and where do we, in, in our diversity, and our differences, and all our strengths, and our weaknesses, where do we find common ground in all of that, and who we are as God's people? So I want to turn to Exodus 19. Uh, now, this is a, the passage just after the Israelites had gotten out of slavery uh, in Egypt, right? So you can, you know, God raised up Moses to go into Egypt. The plagues happened. If you've seen the Ten Commandments movie, you're at least up on that part of it. So that got it most of it right. So, you know, and then they, 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 they leave Egypt. They, they cross the sea on dry ground. And they come where? To Mount Sinai, right? And if you read the book of Exodus... Um, a, a vast portion of the book of Exodus is lo- located here at Mount Sinai, okay? That's the central setting for this book. And it was on this mountain where Moses would go up and meet with God. And this is where God gave to his people the Ten Commandments, uh, for example. And, and he did much more than that. He laid out instructions for how to build the tabernacle. We'll be talking a little bit about that later today and, and how the Israelites were to conduct themselves. And, and this is where, this is the moment in time the people of Israel became a people, okay? This, this is where they had guidelines, where God became their God and they became God's people. And all the guidelines were laid out what that looked like, Okay. But before all of that happened, before the Ten Commandments, before the instructions for the tabernacle, before the whole thing was laid out, this is how God opened their conversation. Or He was speaking to Moses, and he said, this is what you, want, you should tell the people. So starting in verse 3 of Exodus 19, it says, Then Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the Israelites, You have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. And this is the the part I want you to key in on right here. This is where we're going to spend our time this morning. He says, Now, therefore, if you obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be, and he says three things, my treasured possession out of all the peoples. Indeed, the whole earth is mine. That's number one. Number two, but you shall be for me a priestly kingdom and a holy nation. Those are the three things that he titled the people with. That you should be a treasured possession, a priestly kingdom, and a holy nation. These are the words you shall speak to the Israelites. So right from the beginning, before God laid out the commandments, before God laid out the law and and how they were to conduct themselves, he said, I want to be your God, you will be my people, and this is what that will look like. Here's what you will be. Here's your defining characteristics as a people. You will be my treasured possession, okay? You will be a priestly kingdom and a holy nation. So you may be saying, okay, well, that was what God said to the people of Israel in the Old Testament. What has that got to do with me? Okay, because we're not the people of Israel in, ancient, you know, in the ancient Near East, right? Well, turn to 1 Peter chapter 2, 
And we see this verse almost quoted exactly by Peter in his epistle. All right? And now Peter in the New Testament, he's not just speaking to the people of Israel, like the national people of Israel. Now he's talking to everyone who has come to God through Christ. Okay? Everyone who has faith in Christ. And he looks, or he doesn't look, he writes, I guess. So he writes this down, and see if this sounds familiar. In 1 Peter 2.9, he says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. There's those three things again right there. You're chosen, meaning your treasured possession, your gods, you're a royal priesthood, you're a holy nation. Same exact three things. God's own people. In order that you may proclaim the mighty acts of him, who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. And this is the part where we really understand that he's not just talking to the people of Israel, but he's talking to everyone in the world who has come to be a part of the body of Christ. He says, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So I want to explore those three things today. What does it mean to be God's chosen, treasured possession? What does it mean to be a holy people? What does it mean to be a priestly kingdom, right? These are holy and priestly, and what what does this all have to do with me, right? How can I be priestly and all this kind of stuff? And I just, I think this is really good to explore, and I want to explore this with you today, because it's it's changed a little bit exactly how Israel, like the, the nation of Israel in the Old Testament was to live this out, versus how we live this out as the church today, but at its core, it's the same, it's the same concepts. So I want to begin with that first one. And he says, you shall be my treasured possession out of all the peoples. And, um, and I like the way the New Testament words it as well, because he says, you'll, you'll, you are a chosen race, you are a chosen people. And uh, I think that, that concept of choosing is really significant. So first of all, I think, let's just take a second, you know, Chill for just a moment, because some of us need to hear this. I know there's days I need to hear it more than others. Listen to this for a second. You are a chosen person of God. Okay? God doesn't just accept you. He has chosen you. Do you hear the difference in that? This, this isn't passive on God's part. This isn't God sitting back and waiting around for you to come to him. Okay? And then if you come to him with the right words and actions, he's like, acceptable. Yeah, we feel that way sometimes, though, right? Like, God, am I acceptable in your eyes today? You know, I, I know we need to look at ourselves in the mirror every once in a while and remind ourselves of this, that I'm a treasured possession. I'm chosen by God. He actively pursued me, right? I mean, this brings to mind those, those parables about the lost sheep, right? The sheep, you know, that the one out of the 99 goes and the shepherd leaves and it goes and gets it or the, you know the woman who lost the one coin or the, the prodigal son and the, you know these these concepts of you know heaven rejoicing when one person comes to the lord or comes back to the lord or however you want to you know look at that and and so this is explained in other ways throughout for god so loved the world he gave his only son right he he gave he took the initiative and gave the gift the wages of sin is death but the free gift of god is eternal life right? so there's this all this language of god being proactive in this relationship, not reactive. He's not passively sitting back waiting for us to prove ourselves to him, all right? So tell yourself to this. If you have to, every single in the morning, look at yourself and I'm a treasured possession of God. I'm chosen of God. And what's, what's cool about that is there really is no reason for it other than because God wanted it, 
right? So it kind of takes some pressure off of ourselves a little bit. I'm not chosen from God because I deserve it in some way, because I earned it in some way. It's because he chose it. I love the passage in Romans when uh, it's Romans chapter 9, I believe, uh, when you know, the question kind of comes up, why did God choose Jacob over Esau or, or you know, um, uh, what's his face over Ishmael? What was <laughs> Isaac? Oh, wow, the names. Too many names, right? You know, and so there's these questions like why did God choose? And, and uh, I like it because you know, Paul kind of writes you know, the, the favorite parent answer I like to give. He just says because. Well, his way of saying it was God's the potter and we're the clay. Can't he do anything he wants with the clay, right? So he's saying why did God choose you? Because. You know, because he's the parent because. He doesn't have to give a reason. You know, that's, it's, a, it's his reason, not yours. And, and so we need to hear that today. But I, I love, it, as you dig into this uh, Exodus passage a little bit, going back to Exodus, uh, and when this was originally spoken over the people of Israel in the original context of that, the, the, the power of that statement, it, it's interesting because it's not necessarily located in the statement that you're my treasured possession, like, that's special, right? Like, that to be told you're someone's treasured possession. Like, that, that's, that's a very, very special statement or a special thing to hear from someone or to tell to someone. But it's actually the line that comes after it that I think holds more weight. He says, uh, you'll be my treasured possession out of all the peoples. And listen to this part. He says, indeed, the whole earth is mine. So let me tell you why this is significant right here. Um, In the world that the Israelites lived in, the ancient Near East at that time, and the world of Canaan and Babylon, Mesopotamia and Egypt and that whole area in there, there were lots of gods, right? And they just came out of a a place of Egypt where they had been for centuries where there's lots of gods, right? There's the God of light and darkness and death and life and fertility and like you name the topic, there's a God for everything. And a lot of cultures were like that. Uh, we know, you know, in a little later time after that, the Greek and the Roman culture, the Greek gods, there's the God of war and the God of the sea and the God of this. And there's, there's just gods covering everything, right? So this was a world that heavily believed in the supernatural, very different from our world today that we live in in modern America. But this is a world where it was just accepted they're supernatural, right? And there, it was accepted that there is gods, okay? Um, but was, what's more interesting is, is Israel's belief in a one God, as a one true God, was very radical at that time, okay? It's normative to us. We just, you know, we believed in God. Either you believe in God or you don't believe in God. It's just kind of the way our culture is, generally speaking. Um, but that was, that was weird back then, to have this concept of a single one God, right? Because not only did you have your own sets of gods, for example, go back to the, to the Egyptians where they had a God for everything, right? But, and that was okay for them. But they would also accept that other people groups had their gods too. Like it wasn't necessarily our gods are gods and your gods are just fake and made up. You know, so it, it was actually to the point where if nations would fight each other, sometimes the belief was it wasn't necessarily people group versus people group. It was God versus God. And whoever won, their God was stronger. Okay, and that was kind of the concept. Uh, you see this as an example. It's, it's, a, it's a beautiful example in Scripture how God worked within this mindset of, of the ancient Near East uh, there was a time where the Israelites went up against the Philistines. It's early in the book of First Samuel, if you recall. The Israelites lost, and so they said, well, we're going to bring the Ark of the Covenant into battle with us. All right? Because when the Ark comes with us, God's with us, and we know our God is above all gods, and 
we're going to win, right? So what happens, though? They lose, and the Philistines capture the ark. Okay, you can read about this in 1 Samuel 4, 5, and 6. And so, but here's the telling part. Here's what the Philistines do, okay? They take the ark into Ashdod, was the first city they brought it to, and they placed the ark in the temple for their god, Dagon, okay? And they laid the ark in front of Dagon, okay? And so this, so, so it's interesting because the Philistines didn't have the mindset that our god is a god and this is just some box, they believed that this was Yahweh, this was the God of the Israelites, but they had believed in their hearts that, that their God had conquered the Israelites' God. And so they laid the Israelites' God in front of their God as an offering and as a, as a symbolic representation of our God is now bowing to your, you know, your God is now bowing to our God. All right, so that, that was the concept that, that they worked with in all of this. As the story goes on, God shows that he doesn't need anyone to fight his battles for him because when they walked into Dagon's temple the next morning, they found the statue laying on its face before the ark. Right? So what do they do? They set the statue back up. They come in the next day, they find it fallen down again, this time with its head and hands cut off. Right? And then it says all that was left was a torso, it was a stump. Stumpy Dagon was all that was left. Right? So, so what do they do? They send the ark off to... You know, and then, you know, then all of the people in Ashdod start breaking out with tumors. And uh, really interesting part. This is one of those cases, I don't know if I should, oh, yeah, go ahead, I'll say it. We can all handle this, right? This is a fun little fact because uh, sometimes our Bible translations are a little nice in how they translate, but there's a lot of scholars who believe that that word that they were all stricken with tumors should actually be translated hemorrhoids. So anyway, I'll leave it at that. <laughs> so God got them good on that one. So. <laughs> Anyway, so they, uh, well, there you have it. So I preached about hemorrhoids this morning. So, all right, so they go on to the next town and Gath, and same thing happened there. They all break out with something lumpy, and then they go to the next place. And so finally, after they go to the third town, we got to send this God back to the Israelites because his hand is too heavy upon us, and their cries put up to heaven. So, so it's, it's just one of those stories that illustrates this mindset of that time. Okay, that it was gods battling gods. So, so what was the ancient Near East mindset? The ancient Near East mindset was there was a god over not just over different topics of life, like you saw with the Egyptians, the Greeks, the Romans, you know, the god of war, the god of fertility, the god of wine, the, you name it, there was a god for it. But there was also a belief in geographically located gods, meaning this area of the map was this god's domain. This area of the map was this god's domain. And so if you traveled into the land of the Israelites, for example, they believe, okay, now we're in Yahweh's territory, right? This is his territory, okay? This is where he rules. This is where he has domain. You know, when we leave this area, he no longer has domain. So when God says to the Israelites, you will be my people, all right, that's not necessarily all that revolutionary to them because every people had a God, or so they believed, Right? It, was, it was normal for a people group to have a god or gods. All right? But it's the next statement that becomes revolutionary. And I'm going back to it here again, after understanding all of that, listen to what God says. He says, You shall be my treasured possession out of all the peoples. Indeed, the whole earth is mine. So God is saying, I'm not just the God of Canaan. I'm not just the God of Mount Sinai. I'm not just the God of this people only, I am the God of the world. I am in charge of all of it. I am the supreme God. I am the one 
true God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one, from, from Deuteronomy. And uh, so this, this was a radical statement to be said in that moment, that he is over the entire earth. And, and I love, if, if you actually, the, the literal direct translation that, you know, indeed the whole earth is mine, I actually like the, if you take the literal translation of that, it's God actually says, to, to me the whole earth, or to me all the earth. That's like the literal, you know, wooden translation of it. So basically, it's, it's not even just saying the whole earth is mine, as in I claim it. You know, he's saying the whole earth owes allegiance to me. The whole earth is to me. Is, is what God's saying. It is due to me, not because I have a, I'm, I'm making a claim over it, but because of who I am, because I am the creator. Therefore, the earth is due to me. All right? So he's, he's making, God is making a radical statement in this moment. So now, going back to that, you will be my treasured possession out of all the peoples, that carries a little more weight with it right there because he's looking at the people of Israel and he's not just saying, I've chosen to set up shop here in this little corner of the world. He's saying, the world is mine, but I have decided to focus on you. Okay, Everything is mine, but you're the one. You're the one that's going to become my treasured possession out of everything. You're my chosen. I'm choosing you. It's kind of like, you know, you walk into a pet store, you're looking for a new puppy or something like that. And there's lots of cute puppies out there, but then there's that one you lock eyes with, you know, and you know it has to be yours. Or if you're my wife, she, yeah, she's not her head. She hates furry things that poop. That's what she says. So, <laughs> and uh, so I don't know, whatever it is, fill in the blank, you're going shopping and, and but you know, you, the whole store can be yours, but there's that one item that you're like, that's got to be mine. And so, and if you like puppies or kitties or whatever, you can envision it as connecting with that animal or whatever that works for you. But that's kind of the mindset that's being, that's being laid out here. And that's what God is, is doing to this. Then jumping back to the Peter passage, going back to the New Testament concept, and when Peter brings this to the New Testament church and this, the same concept to them, um, he uh, not only quotes from the Exodus passage, but he also throws in a little quotation from a passage in Isaiah. And I want to focus on this for just a second. So he says, you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own people. All that part kind of comes from the Exodus concept. Um, In order that you may proclaim the mighty acts of him or proclaim the praises of him. Uh, It could be translated either way and different translations do different things with that. So in order that you may proclaim the mighty acts of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And so I want to, that little line right there, you're chosen so that you may proclaim his mighty acts or his praises. That concept is drawn out of an Isaiah passage, Isaiah 43. Um, if you want to turn there, I don't have it up on the screen, but I, I'll read from it here in just a second. So I want to read a, a little bit of this passage in its greater context, because this is the, some of the concept that um, Isaiah's trying to draw from, and what, or excuse me, what Peter is trying to pull out. And he's saying, look back what Isaiah said, and this also fits into this concept of who you are as the people of God. So in Isaiah 43.1, it says, but now thus says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. So that kind of goes back to that picking out the right puppy, right? So once you name it, it's over. It's it's kind of an old farmer's thing too, right? Don't name the cow if you plan on eating it, right? Because once you name it, it kind of changes the relationship. So, So he says, I've called you by name. You are mine. 
When you, when you pass through waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. And it, it goes on and on like this as God just, you know, shedding his love on the people and the exceptionality of what he'll do for his people. Um, and then jumping to verse 19, he says, I am about to do a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. The wild animals will honor me, the jackals and the ostriches. Don't know why he picked those two, but he did. So, for I give water in the wilderness, rivers in the desert, to give drink. And here's the part that Peter latches on to, to give drink to my chosen people, the people who I formed for myself so they might declare my praise. So that's that concept that Peter pulled into his comment in, in the New Testament right there. So by Peter also drawing upon both the Exodus passage and drawing upon this passage in Isaiah, he's, he's trying to bring out these concepts, and really you can see with Isaiah, of, of hitting home just how special of a people you are, how unique of a people you are, how, how wonderful of a people you are, and just what lengths God would go to for you. And I think that is a thing that we need to tell ourselves and remind ourselves of as the people of God, especially as the world we live in grows more and more hostile to God every single day. And, you know, it becomes harder and harder to, I think, be a person of faith. Um, but if we remember this, although it may be harder to become a per- or remain and be a person of faith, I think we could be more effective at it. I mean, not that I invite it, but Christianity has always been its strongest in times of persecution throughout history. I'm not inviting persecution, I don't desire it. But if we embrace it with the right mindset, with the right understanding of who we are, who God is, how he feels about us, um, it strengthens us. We are strengthened because of it, not beaten down because of it. And I think that's the, the real importance of remember, remembering the concept of the treasured possession out of all the people's. This is how God feels about the people, his children, the family of God. So he goes on then. So he, you are a treasured possession. Beautiful statement right there in, in, in all the facets that that involves. And then he makes two more claims. And so I want to hit these last two then here. He says, you are a priestly kingdom and a holy nation. Uh, so actually, I want to hit, he says priestly nation first, but I want to hit on the holy nation part first. I want to go to that initially. Um, and it's, it's interesting because at first glance, you almost think these two are at tension with one another, but you see that you can't have one without the other. Because at its core, what does it mean to be holy? It means to be separate, to be distinct, to be almost, to be sanctified, to be cut off from. You know, that's, if things were, in the Israelite camp, if things were considered to be holy, they were like set apart for the use of God. And you know, those holy things, and if you were holy and clean, you couldn't touch, dot, touch dead bodies, and there was all these regulations surrounding holiness and cleanliness in the Old Testament. Um, but then you have the concept of being a priest, and what does a priest do? A priest works as an inter- intermediary between people and God. So how can you be separate but be an intermediary at the same time? You know, so you can see how these two are at tension a little bit, but I want to I go into how I think uh, these two need each other to be what they are and to be strong in both ways. So first I want to talk about that. You are a holy nation. So as I mentioned already, to be holy, it means to be separate. It means to be distinct. It means to be, you know, not cut off. I don't necessarily love the word cut off, 
because um, you're not cutting yourself off, but you're just distincting yourself from. Is distincting a word? I don't know. But maybe you get the idea through that. And uh, they, they had to be somehow set apart from the world that was around them. He said, there are going to be things about you that make you distinctive as a people group. There will be rules and regulations and ways of living that you're going to have to do that is going to be different from the world around you. Um, But as I mentioned, I don't think this means to be cut off. It can't mean that. Because along with all these comments of God talking about you are to be holy, to be distinct, right? Along with that, he's also talking about you being a blessing to the rest of the world and a light to the rest of the world and all these kind of concepts. So there was supposed to be interactivity between the people of God and the world. They weren't just supposed to crawl into their little bubble and disappear forever, right? Um, so, so the tension of those two concepts, how do, we, how do we walk that line and walk it well? Well, here's where I think... God's really trying to get at with holy nation, okay? When he says, you are my people, and then he goes through, and like I was talked about before, throughout much of the book of Exodus then, he describes to the people what now does it look like to be a distinctive people of God, okay? The first thing is what we're most familiar with. He goes in in Exodus 20, the very next chapter, into what? The Ten Commandments, right? And so he lays out, you know, what does this mean to be holy? It means that, you know, you serve me alone. It means you don't have idols and carved images. You know, it means you keep the Sabbath holy and you don't take my name in vain and you don't kill and murder and lie and steal and, you know, and all these kind of things. So there's these issues of morality and conduct, you know, that make you separate. The things that you see the rest of the world doing or that you see out there, you don't partake in that because you are working under my morality and this is who I am as a God and this is who you will be as a people. But then he gets, you know, they get through some of the, the, the law, the, the, the instruction given to the people. And then there's this massive portion. You may have noticed this if you ever tried to read through Exodus. Because there's this massive portion then that describes the building of the tabernacle. Okay? It's chapters and chapters long. And sometimes it's pretty hard to read because you're sitting there and you're reading Exodus. And it's a really riveting book. Like, it's exciting, right? The whole birth of Moses and um, the plagues of Egypt and, you know, crossing the Red Sea and coming to Mount Sinai and all this. Like, this is really intriguing reading, okay? And then you cross this point in the book where all of a sudden you're getting into these minute details about how to set up the tabernacle. All right, this curtain is supposed to be this color and hung right here, and this is how many cubits long this is. And you're like, okay, this got boring really fast, right? So why was it so necessary to lay out this tabernacle concept in such detail, you know, that today kind of makes it a little bit, it's like reading blueprints almost, you know? It's, it's not necessarily the most, the most fun reading. Why was that so important? Because... How, the, not just the tabernacle, but how the camp was to be set up. As the Israelites walked into the wilderness, and as they became a people, and they moved along, and they would set up the tabernacle, they would set up their camp around the tabernacle, how that was all set up was designed very intentionally to remind the Israelite people, not just who you were as a people, but where your identity comes from. And I think this is the key to holiness. Right here, I want to give you this line, is that for Israel, everything about their identity, what made them them, had to be at its center God. It is God who formed them. It is God who made them who they are. And so translate that to us today, 
I believe that's really, really important that we need to look at ourselves and say, how am I, am I holy? What does that mean? And say, well, what forms me as a person? What drives me? What makes me who I am? What gives me the desires of my heart? What do I want out of this life? What am I trying to get out of this life? What, um, what motivates all of that in me? Is it God or is it the things of this world? Is it because I want to be like this world or imitate something in this world? Or do I want to be formed out of who God is? So back to the Israelites' camp with that in mind. Here is how they were to design the camp. And you'll see that it was set up in a series of concentric circles. Concentric circles are like a smaller circle, a bigger circle, bigger circle, going outward like that. So what did we have at the center of the camp? Whenever Israel was to make camp, the tabernacle was in the middle. And all the people camped around it. There was 12 tribes. And three tribes were to camp to the north, three to the east, three to the south, three to the west, and all around the tabernacle, which was at the very center. And uh, so we had the tabernacle. Actually, the Levites, which operated as the priestly tribe, they camped around the tabernacle, and then the rest of Israel camped around the Levites. So, But what do we have at the very center of the tabernacle? We have the Holy of Holies, the most holy place, right? This was the inner, inner room of the tabernacle where the Ark of the Covenant was, and that's where the presence of God dwelled, okay? That was to be at the very center of the camp. It was the most holy place on the earth, okay? No one could enter it except for the high priest, and only once per year could he walk into that room, okay? And if you read Leviticus 16, there was a whole lot of ritual he had to go through to prepare himself to be able to walk into that room. So the concept is, this is, this is God, this is as holy as it gets, right? The most holy place, the holy of holies. So then around that, we have the holy place, okay? This was the next room of the tabernacle where a few items were set up, and this is where a lot more priestly work could be done. Okay, so this was there was a curtain separating the most holy place from the next room. So this wasn't quite as holy as the inner room. All right, it, um, you know it was a one step away from God's presence, but some priests could enter it and do work in it. And then what do we have? We have the courtyard, uh, which was around the tabernacle. Okay, so we're outside of the tent now, but it's still within the confines of the tabernacle. And this is where sacrifices were offered, burnt offerings and that kind of stuff. And this is where people of the camp, people of the Israelites, if they were bringing a sacrifice to the temple, they could go into the, the courtyard and that's where they could offer their sacrifice with the priest helping them and all that. And so then what do we have outside of that? We have the Levites, okay? The Levites camped around side the tabernacle. They were a more holy tribe of Israel, right, than the rest of the, the Israelites because they were consecrated for the work of the tabernacle. That was their job, okay? So there were certain rituals that they had to go through to further consecrate or sanctify themselves so that they could be worthy of working within the tabernacle. And then we have the camp of Israel around that, and they were, to all, they were a holy nation. So they maybe could not enter into the holy place, but there was still inside the camp and then outside the camp. Okay, and so what happened if you committed certain sins, if you if you did certain uh, acts of uncleanliness, or you had certain diseases or something like that, then you'd be sent outside of the camp into the world, which was the least of the holy. It was the common place. Okay, everything from the borders of the Israelite camp in was considered holy. Okay, and everything outside of it was considered profane. 
uh, or, and that word really just means common. And when we use that word profane, we, it doesn't really mean profane as we kind of use it in our language today, as profanity or something really bad. It wasn't seen to be bad. It was just seen to be not holy. All right? So you see how everything's set up as these concentric circles working its way out. So in the further away you get, the less holiness there is involved, or the closer you get into who God is, the more holy you are. So everything, this is why there's so much ink spilt on describing how the tabernacle and how the camp was to be set up because this was Israel's identity, okay? This was who they were as a people. It defined them, okay? It defined them that as you got closer to God, you became more holy and that he was the center of everything that you are. All right, and that had to work that way. And what was interesting is also along with these instructions is there are always ways given for people in an outer circle of how, does, how do you work your way into the next circle. All right? So for the people outside of Israel, there was always a way to become part of the community of Israel. Okay? If you wanted to be, um, become part of the Israelite people, you could. There was instructions for how, how aliens, outsiders, could become part of the people of Israel. All right, so then the people of Israel, they would be able to come into the outer courts of the tabernacle. Now, although they couldn't physically step into the holy place or the holy of holies, but what? You had a priest. You had an intermediary who would do that for you. So you, wherever you were, wherever you found yourself on, that, on those layers of holiness, you had a way to get a step closer to God. You had a way to move yourself in or to help have someone else bring you one step closer to God. All right, so... We obviously don't structure our lives that way physically today, okay? We don't have a tabernacle and a camp that we camp around, and that's not us today. But when, we're, when Peter is saying, you are a holy people, this is the concept that's to come to the minds of the readers. You know, this is what made the people of Israel holy. So how do we live that out? And as I mentioned before, we live that out by making God the center, all right? All that we are is defined by who he is and how he wants us to be. So I have to ask you, and we all have to ask ourselves, we look at ourselves and we say, what are my motivations? Why do I want to be the things that I want to be? Why do I want to do the things that I want to do? What motivates that in me? And at its source, it must be God. You know, it can't be, it, it can't be because my culture demands this of me because society wants to push this upon me because I look out and I think that's fun and cool and I want to I have it too, you know? And, and what, what draws us? What makes us who we want to be? And I think we all have to be aware of, of just how powerful our society around us, the influence and the desire to fit in, the desire to be like the culture and the people that are around us, just how strong of a... a desire that is. Now, there's nothing wrong with fitting in with the place you live. I mean, we live in America. We're Americans. We act like Americans, and like that's okay, you know, and there's nothing wrong with us having a little bit of a different lifestyle than people who live in other countries in the world and having different cultures and ways. You, that's okay. You know, there's nothing wrong with that of, you know, the way we talk or think or, you know, those kind of things, but to what extreme do we bring that? There's an example of the people of Israel taking this to a really far extreme, if you look in Deuteronomy, this is Moses talking to the people, Deuteronomy 18. And I'm going to read in verse 9. And uh, they're about to enter into the, to the promised land, okay? 
And this is one of the warnings Moses gives. He says, when you come into the land that the Lord your God is giving you, you must not learn to imitate the abhorrent practices of those nations. All right, so he's giving them, he's saying, look, you're going to want to be like them because that's the way everybody else is. But you must, I've already defined who you are. You can't want to be like that. No one, he says, shall be found among you who makes a son or daughter pass through fire or who practices divination or is a soothsayer or an augur or a sorcerer or who casts spells or who consults ghosts or spirits or who seeks oracles from the dead. Uh, whoever does these things is abhorrent to the Lord. And it is because of such abhorrent practices that the Lord your God is driving them out before you. So this talks a lot about supernatural things, right? And witchcraft and sorcery and all these things. And, and all these things have to do with receiving something, downloading something supernatural, right? When you would cast spells and you know, divination and all this kind of stuff is like you're seeking some kind of supernatural being to put into you. But I want to like go all the way back to there's this big long list the first one, and depending on your translation, the one I read says, pass your son or daughter through fire. Some say sacrifice your children in the fire, because that's what that means. Let's, like, think about that just for a second. <laughs> um, how many parents in this room? Has anyone ever, ever had to tell you, it might be a bad idea to burn your children in fire? <laughs> okay, don't raise your hand if you actually wanted to do that sometimes. But, <laughs> but no, uh, I mean, as a parent, I'm like, no. Like, never, not in a thousand years. Like, I can't even imagine harming my child like that. That's just, it's disgusting. But there were people that did that, okay? And not only that, but that you read through Israel's account, there were times that the Israelites did that. Why did they do that? What, what would drive a person to, to burn their own child? Peer pressure? Because that's what the culture around them was like? Because that's what other people did? Because that's how you were supposed to be able to divine divination, divine things from God and receive from the supernatural? I mean, if, if your culture and the people around you can have enough influence and power over you that can cause you to burn your own child, children in fire, what else does it have the power to do? And, and I wonder if we realize this enough sometimes about ourselves just how truly coerced we can be by the world that's around us. This is why God being our center and our source of everything, that he needs to be, we have a daily intake of him into our lives and a daily allowing him to form who we are, making us holy, distinctive as his child is so important. And if you're not actively doing that on a daily basis, you will find yourself being consumed by the world around you. And the world around you will determine who you are. Because if you're passive about that, it's just going to happen. Right? If you're not actively pursuing God, the world will actively work itself into you. And I, that passage to me is always a reminder of just how powerful that can be in a person's life. And how powerful your society, your culture, the people around you can be in defining who you are. And so... That's a powerful word to think about, and it's something we need to keep in mind. And that's what I think it means to keep yourself holy, is to intentionally make God your source, your foundation, the center of who you are, all right? As I said, it's not about making yourself different, going into a bubble and cutting yourself off from the rest of the world. And, you know, and sometimes as Christians, we have that mentality of just, I just want to, you know, 
Pretend it doesn't exist and just wait for God to come, right? It's really easy to want to do that too. Um, But that's not it. That's not what holy means. Holy means God is our center. God is our center. And we're we're constantly working our way towards him, towards him, towards the center. But then he says you are a priestly kingdom. So on to that last point here. And uh, I won't spend a ton of time here because I already hit it a bunch as I was going along through the other things. Like I said, now the priestly kingdom, that almost sounds like it's at tension, right? We're holy, we're separate, but we're also priestly. But think about as I was describing the camp to you, this is what it meant to the early Israelites, you know, with, with the understanding of the people that were camped around the tabernacle and around the Levites. He looks at them and he says, you understand that you cannot walk into the presence of God. You can't just waltz into the Holy of Holies and be in the presence of God, right? You know, there are Levites and priests and high priests that are intermediaries that, that bring you to them through that. Because that day of atonement, that one day a year the high priest could walk into the presence of God, that was making an atonement for the entire camp of Israel, right? So that was, that was your way to get in there. But what do we learn in the New Testament, right? The book of Hebrews tells us who is now our intermediary between us and God. Jesus, right? Okay, so although we still don't have the ability to just step into the, waltz into the presence of God, Hebrews does say you can boldly enter the presence of God. Why? Because of Christ. So the Israelites had spent their entire lives on the outside of the camp having no ability to walk in, right? They, they, they didn't do that. They intermediaries that could do that for them. But now Christ brings us in. And hint, hint, Christ is God, (laughs) you know? So now we have direct access to God. So that's really cool, all right? Because we have Christ, because he's our high priest, all right? Hebrews explains that to us. But what about the people outside of the camp? They don't have Christ, okay? They don't have him. They don't have an intermediary between him and God. So who are you? You're their priest. That's what this Bible is saying. That's what it means when it says you're a priestly kingdom, He says, you are the path between the people of this world who are outside of the camp. You're the path between them and God. Because that's what a priest does. A priest is an intermediary. A priest is the bridge between, you know, bringing you one step closer to God. And why in ancient Israel could a priest do that work? Because they kept themselves holy. That's how and why they could do the work. Remember I said the high priest can only enter the the most holy place one day a year, and there's all these, read Leviticus 16, there's all these rituals he had to go through to purify himself and to keep himself holy and clean and pure so that he could walk into the presence of God. And if, and if they weren't in a right place, they, they would die, okay? This would, they, would, they would lose their life. There's stories in Scripture of people being in the presence of the, the Ark of the Covenant and touching it and dying because they weren't worthy of doing it, right? So the only reason the priest could function as a priest is because of their holiness, okay? Because of their level of holiness and all the stuff that they went through to do that. So as you are seeking to keep yourself holy, seeking to keep God the center of who you are and making him your foundation, him your motivation of who you are as a person, as a child of God, it's not just for your own righteousness. That's a cool benefit, all right? It's not just so that I can be a good person, so I think sometimes we individualize things way too much. Because notice in all of this, really, this is, this is not individual talk. All right? God is addressing the nation of Israel. Right? Peter is addressing the people of God. 
right? So this, this isn't a singular holiness, as in you as an individual are holy. This is you as a people are holy, all right? So he's, this is a corporate kind of mindset here, right here. So as, as we are seeking to make God our foundation of everything, it's not just so that I can be righteous and so that I can get to heaven. That's part of it, and that's really cool. But it's also so that I can be a bridge for someone else. Why do I keep myself holy? So that I can function as a priest. So that when I come in contact with the outside world, through me, they can be led to Christ. And then Christ can lead them directly into the presence of God because he's the intermediary after that. So that's, that's, that's why we keep ourselves holy. That's why we do what we do. That's one of the big reasons that we do it. And, and if you want to have that kind of impact in someone's life that's outside of the family of God, that holiness is essential. That connection with God is essential. Because if, if you're not being formed by God, if you're just being formed by the world and you're taking your cues and your motivations from the world... When that person outside looks at you, they're not going to see anyone any different than they are. You're just going to look like them. You have nothing distinctive. You have nothing desirable. You have nothing that makes you different from them. You're just like every other person they know in this world. And, and why would they want to latch on to you for anything? Because they've already got what you have. All right? But if they see something distinctive in you, something different, they, they see a radiance, a light, the light of God in you. All right. Think about these. This is kind of what Jesus is talking about in the New Testament when he and he says what he gives some analogies here that you're salt, right? You're light. You're city on a hill, right? You remember these these phrases that this, this is who the people of God are. You know, you bring saltiness to this world. You bring light to this world. You impact this world. All right. And we do that through our distinctive holiness. We do that by being who God makes us to be. Sometimes we're so afraid of the world of God. And I talked earlier about how this world, it's, it's becoming harder to be a person of faith in our society today. And sometimes we just want to kind of get in our shell and just be like, leave me alone. Stop taking my liberties away. Stop taking my stuff away. And, you know, stop telling me I can't do this. And, you know, we just kind of just crouch into our little shell right here. And we're so afraid of the world changing our experience as a Christian. We're so, we're so afraid of, of the world encroaching on us. You know, that we forgot that God has called us to be the agent of change. You know, that we are not reacting to the world, but we are sending into the world. We're bringing God to the world through who we are, through who he has made us to be, through our distinctive holiness. So I encourage you to think about this today. And you see how then, if this is our core, as I started with this morning, then whatever your calling is, this fits into that, okay? However you serve God in your own unique way, with your giftings that God has empowered you to do, whatever people you're connecting with out there, whatever you do in, in the walls, you know, outside the walls of this church and outside the camp, if you will, whatever, whatever you have going on out there, it's different for every one of us, and that's a good thing. It's a really, really good thing, but all of that can connect back to these three things, so don't forget those three things today. At its core, this is who you are. You are God's treasured possession. He will go to any lengths for you. Tell yourself that in the mirror every morning if you have to, but don't forget it. That's who you are as his chosen child. That's who you are to him.
you are to be centered in him in everything that you do, in every way that you think. If you find, and you, you take an honest, value of yourself, an honest evaluation of yourself from time to time, what motivates me? What drives me? Why do I want to be the things that I want to be? Why do I want to do the things that I want to do? If you can't see God at the center of that motivation, you need to adjust, okay? And, and beware of the power of the culture and society around you and the power that it has to form you into what it wants you to be. Be aware of that power. And just see yourself as, as a priest. Whatever you're called to do, you are an intermediary between a person and God. You're their path to Jesus, and Jesus is their path to God. If you view yourself in that way, if you understand at its core who you are as a person of God, your distinctive calling will begin to flourish. Your unique ability to reach the world around you will reach new heights because of who you are. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you so much. And the worship team can, can come up if they'd like. Lord, we just thank you so much. First of all, for that, for that first part right there. It says that we're your treasured possession. God, I don't, I don't think we have a clue to really understand how special that is, how amazing that is, how, how you view us, how you see us, who we are in your eyes. But God, I pray that you'll give us some glimpses of it today. And I think there are some people in this room that probably really need to hear that today. They need to be looked at and told how much they're loved and chosen and selected. You didn't tell us that we're tolerated. We're chosen. We're not acceptable. We're pursued. That's incredible. And God, whatever heart needs to hear that this morning, we all need it to some degree, but I know there's some hearts in, this, in here this morning that need it more than others. God, just... Begin to reveal your love into those hearts this morning. And God, I pray that you'll help us to become holy priests. God, center ourselves, we can center ourselves in you so that we can be a bridge to this, from this world to you, Lord God. Help us to bring people to you. God, give us a mindset that goes beyond ourselves, beyond the camp into the people of this world. And God, I pray continuously you will show us what it means for us as individuals to be a priest to that person, to be a priest to those people, to usher them into the presence of you, Lord Jesus. God, I, am, I stand here humbled this morning that you have asked us to, to walk in this role. God, we don't deserve to be this, but this is who you've chosen us to be. And so I pray, God, that you'll give us the strength to be this, the strength to walk in this way, to be your people as defined by you. We thank you for this, and we pray this all in your name. Amen. Amen. All right, well, I think we're going to close with a song here. Um, you know, I'll, I'll hang around up front here if, you know, while this song is being played, if, and if anyone else with the prayer team or whatever wants to be available, if you'd like prayer over one of these areas and you feel God speaking, come on up during this song and, and uh, let's just focus on him a little bit and let this sink into our hearts as we soak in the presence of God here for just a few moments as we sing this song. Thank you for listening. You can find us online at BethelAG.com or on Facebook at Bethel Assembly of God, Littlestown, Pennsylvania. Our services are also live streamed every Sunday on our YouTube channel, Bethel AG, Littlestown, Pennsylvania.